The following is a sermon from the church at Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. All right, so this morning we are in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 4, continuing a series on the scattered church. The scattered church. Again, we uh, tried to draw out a distinction in week one between the gathered church, what we're doing here, which is the people of God led by clearly defined leaders, taking the ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper, proclaiming the word, praying together, burden-bearing relationships. What happens is the church is gathered. But the emphasis on these four weeks is what happens when the church scatters. We're still the church as we're apart, day in and day out, doing our thing. But how do we live intentionally in all the places that God has put us? I think Mark 4 helps frame for us what it means to live with intentionality as we scatter. I've broken the series into four parts, going, sowing, training, and sending. So if you're kind of taking notes in a consistent journal, last week going, this week sowing, next week training, and then uh, first week in February, what does it mean for us to send with intentionality? Now when we ask, if, if I were to ask you, what is the goal, what is the aim of the Christian life? How might you respond? If you've been around the church for any length of time, particularly a church like TCC, you've been trained in certain patterns, you're, you're likely to reply, well, the aim is to glorify God, right? Piper would be impressed. Um, but if we were to peel behind that layer, you might say something a bit more common, that I glorify God by becoming more and more like Jesus, by being sanctified by, by being conformed to the image of God's Son. Now, what does that process entail? Like, what does it mean for us to live out the Christian life? Many of us would think in terms of, of attributes. Well, it means that I become more loving or caring or more, more merciful. And they, these are certainly good things. But if the end is to be like Jesus— it would serve us well to consider, well, what did Jesus actually do, right? What did he spend his time doing? What were his priorities? Not, not what did Jesus feel, though that is important, but, but what did his activity look like? And a simple read of the stories about Jesus that are told in the first four books of our New Testament, kind of the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, reveals that Jesus spent a whole lot of time preaching about the kingdom of God. This is what he did. Now, we've often been trained to kind of fast forward through that stage of Jesus' life and get, get on to the death, burial, and resurrection. Very important truths. But it's clear from the gospel writers that they wanted us to notice Jesus' pattern of preaching about the kingdom. That through repentance and belief... People could enter God's kingdom and have a relationship with him. This is what Jesus talked about all the time. Now, it's easy for us to write this off. This is just Jesus being Jesus, right? Yet, if we would say the goal for our lives is to be like Jesus or be conformed to Jesus, 
then that conformity has to take on more effect than merely our feelings being shaped to be like Jesus. Our actions should be informed in that way as well. This morning's story gives us a picture of this Jesus on mission proclaiming the kingdom And it's hard to miss how important this parable is, the parable of the sower. In fact, as I was thinking about this morning's sermon months ago as we were prepping for it, I I almost chose a different text because I said to myself, man, this is so familiar, you guys are going to go on autopilot with me. But every time you go to choose a different text, it seems like the other text spirals you back to this text because it is foundational for understanding Jesus' ministry and what he calls his people to do. It's mentioned in each of the Gospels. In fact, it's positioned as one of the first parables in each of the Gospels. Here, clearly, in Mark's Gospel, though we've got a really condensed, action-packed summary of Jesus' life, Mark says, I'm going to organize my writing about Jesus to move this thing to the front. And it's clear that he's placed it with intentionality. In an agrarian society, this parable would have been particularly sticky. No one's going to miss it. Now, few of us are going out to sow this afternoon, at least in the real practical. We're not cultivating our fields. You might have some raised flower beds in the back, but most of us are not practicing this. But in this culture, this would have been a very clear, easy, sticky parable. And it's told here, specifically Mark organizes the parable as a means of explaining other parables. And that's actually where I want us to start this morning. So look at verse 10 of Mark chapter 4. Notice, probably in your Bible, you're going to have a break. What Kristen read for us this morning in verses 1 through 9, and then there's going to be a pause, and uh, your editor's probably going to have stuck a header there, something like, Jesus explains parables, you know, something like that. And then verses 10 through 12 are going to be sandwiched together for you, and then he's going to kind of pick up an explanation of the parable in verse 13. Now, you know, if an author arranges stuff like that, like he breaks a story and puts something in the middle, this is going to be a really big deal. And if we understand what's going on in 10 through 12, it helps frame the sandwich bread, as it were, what's going on before it and what's coming after. So notice, beginning in verse 10, he was alone, those around him with the 12, And they ask him about the parables. So clearly Mark's assuming that he's teaching other parables, of which we're familiar with. And he answered them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those outside, everything comes in parables. So that they may indeed look and yet not perceive. They may indeed listen but not understand. Otherwise, they may turn back and be forgiven. Now, that seems weird, right? Really strange explanation of what's going on. Now, it does seem weird to us as readers. It's going to continue to seem weird, but it's a little bit less weird if you notice another tool your Bible editors have given you to help explain this. Odds are your passage is either bolded, centered, or set off a little bit, indicating that what Mark's doing here is quoting from somewhere else in the Bible. Anytime you see that in your own Bible reading, always good. Just press pause where you are and flip back. 
Because the Bible, the author is picking up on a theme that somebody else has mentioned. And odds are what's already been mentioned is going to help you understand what's currently being said. So let's do that. You're going to have a little superscript or something that's going to point you back to Isaiah chapter 6. So, you know, on your phone or in your Bible, turn back to Isaiah chapter 6. The passage that Mark quotes for us here as an explanation of what's going on in this parable. Isaiah chapter 6, specifically, let's pick up the text in verse 9. And he replied, okay, so we're picking up in the middle of a scene here. This is God replying to the prophet Isaiah. And he, God, replied to Isaiah, go say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull. Deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their minds and turn back and be healed. And then I, this is the prophet Isaiah saying, then I said, until when, Lord? And he replied, until the cities lie in ruins without inhabitants and houses without people and land is ruined and desolate. And the Lord drives away the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Verse 13. Then a tenth will remain in the land. It will be burned again, like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when it's failed. The holy seed is that stump. Hmm. Some familiar language and some, some familiar pictures happening here in Isaiah's writing. Now, if you're familiar with where we turn back, or just if you, if you actually scan back, you might have the first part of that chapter highlighted or all marked up in your Bible. It's a really famous passage of Scripture. Any missions conference has probably preached that text. God calls, who's going to go? Isaiah famously declares, here am I, send me. Now, mission conferences conveniently end, typically, uh, before we hit verse 9, which is the, what does that sending look like? The instructions are really clear, but they're incredibly depressing. Isaiah's going to go. He's going to continue to proclaim the word. Yet those who think they see and understand will not. In fact, their ears will be stopped, their minds will be dull, and their hearts will be hardened. And oh, and by the way, Isaiah, the more you preach, the more this is going to prove to be true. Now, who is he speaking of here? Who are these people whose hearts are dull, minds, hearts hardened, minds dull to the truths that Isaiah would reclaim? Well, it's counterintuitive for us. It's actually the nation Israel that he's speaking of. Notice this is Jeremiah Similar scene, Jeremiah is called, declare this to the house of Jacob, the people of God, saying, hear this, you foolish and senseless people. They, the nation of Israel, they have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. Or the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 12, verses 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came to me and he said, son of man, you are living among a rebellious house. Here he uses the picture of a family. The house, the people of God. 
He says, they have eyes to see, but they do not see. They have ears to hear, but they do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. What we have Jesus doing is picking up on something that the prophets of old have been doing, which is holding out a word of impending judgment and challenge to those who have ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts beating with life. There's this certainty of coming judgment. And a classic expression used here to speak of the hardness of those apart from the cultivation of God's spirit in them. And yet we have here some seedlings of promise or of hope. Notice in Isaiah 6, this proclamation, this challenge, still expects that there are going to be some who see and hear and follow. We have this note that if they turned back, they would be healed. God holds out a word of encouragement and of hope to these. It is not God who has dug in his heels. It is their persistent rebelliousness. And then in verse 2, or I'm sorry, idea number 2 in verse 13, there's this kind of cryptic picture that a tenth will remain in the land. There's going to be a holy seed, a stump that is left after a tree is chopped down. He's going to fail the tree of those who are hardened apart, but there's going to be a remnant. There's going to be a subset of the whole that's going to remain. Many of your yards testify to this reality. You felled a tree and your kids still trip over the stump that is left in a really precarious place about the yard. There's, there's something that, that testifies to life was cut off, but something re- remains. And here, interestingly, in verse 13 of Isaiah 6, the picture is of this remnant as a seed. This is not the only place that the prophets of old picture the remnant of Israel as a seed. Here again, the words of Jeremiah from Jeremiah 24, verses 4 through 7. The word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Like the good figs, so I regard as good the exiles from Judah that I sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will keep my eyes on them for their good, and I will return them to this land. I will build them up, and I will not demolish them. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them, notice these pictures, I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, because they will return to me with all their heart. Or just a few chapters later in Jeremiah 31. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of the people and the seed of the animals, just as I watched over them to uproot them and to tear them down, to demolish and to destroy and to cause disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant them. This is the Lord's declaration. This is the tone that is playing in the ears of the hearers of Jesus' day. This promise of a remnant people who will be sown in the land, 
planted by God and able to do the very things that the prophets of old said the nation broadly would not do, repent and return to him. Jesus' parables are functioning just like Isaiah's words. They're screening out those whom the Spirit is active and at work in, granting minds to hear and hearts to respond from those that are not. And we have in this parable a word of warning to us all. Don't be like Israel. Don't dig your heels in in complicit rebellion from the Lord. Respond, humble yourself, and come to God. Jesus is acting like a prophet, proclaiming the kingdom to those who have ears to hear to respond to this message. And this is why we notice back in Mark 4, verses 1 through 9, the imagery of hearing. Thirteen times in these short verses, Jesus says, hear this. Testifying to the fact that the only way these words receive a legitimate hearing is the work of the Spirit of God in the people who are hearing. And then he captures this in a very familiar parable. And he uses verses 14 and following to explain the parable that he's told to those who have ears to hear. I'll give you three truths about this parable that help inform our lives of sowing seed for the gospel. Truth number one is that the kingdom invitation is a proclaimed word. The kingdom invitation is a proclaimed, spoken word. Verse 14, notice the explanation. I'm going I'm to pit these two together, the sandwich bread on the front end and the sandwich bread on the back end. In verse 14, the sower, what does he sow? He sows the word. And, and what is the word? It's the kingdom invitation that you can enter God's kingdom by repentance and faith through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The sower sows this word. He invites people into the kingdom. This is what Jesus is doing. Now in our day where wordless invitations or at least unspoken invitations like personally communicated invitations are very common right the birthday blast I mean you just put some cards in the mail and send them out or the little e-invite and click send right but this to invite someone to a banquet to a feast to a kingdom you're saying this is here come in and Jesus pictures what will happen when we proclaim this word, as is what happened when Jesus proclaimed this word. Now, what this is not, these four paradigms for us, it's not every cause for a seed failing. Clearly, there were other reasons that a seed wouldn't produce fruit in that day. Nor is it meant for us to be a percentage, right? So we're not like guessing on percentages, 25 and one, 25 and another, 25 and another. It's just giving us some broad categories to think through what's going to happen as Jesus proclaimed the word, and then in turn, as we do. Some's going to fall on the path. The birds are going to devour it. Verse 15 explains this. Some are like the word that's sown on the path. 
when they hear immediately Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown to them. Now, as we're listening to this testimony about the places, I want you to think your own experience, so you can testify that that was you at one time, and the experience you've had in interacting with people who are far from God. So some falls on the path, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown. Others fall on rocky ground. They didn't have the soil, it grew quickly, sun scorched it, there was no root. Uh, this isn't an uncommon experience for us. Sarah asked me to plant some bushes in the backyard, and I go out and start digging, and the first two inches are stunningly beautiful, right? Man, we're making great progress. I'm going to get this thing in the ground in like five minutes flat until I hit the rock, right? I didn't know it was there, but it's hidden just barely under the surface, enough to make the labor incredibly difficult, the same would be true, rocks hiding underneath, seemingly giving the appearance that the seeds are sprouting, but then in dying because of inadequate roots. Verse 16 explains this. Others are like the seed that's sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. But they have no root. They are short-lived. When distress or persecution comes, because of the word, they immediately fall away. Again, we can lay on the top of this our own experience, the experience of others as we try to testify to them. Jesus' experience in his day, I, I call to mind here uh, the passage, uh, and not surprisingly, like John six sixty six. right? From that point forward, this is after he's testified to his body being broken and blood poured out. At that point, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him right? So there's this falling away. Some falls on the rocky ground. Then thirdly, some fell among the thorns. It was choked and it didn't produce fruit. Verse 18 and 19 explain this. Others are like the seeds sown among the thorns. These are the ones that hear the word, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. I'm reminded here of the famous scene in Mark 10. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him, and he asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said, teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth. And then verse 21, looking at him, Jesus loved him and he said, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand. And he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Now, Mark packs those together. We know that in our experience, sometimes those are separated by time. It seems to produce something, and then the call of following Jesus becomes clear, and there's an unwillingness to relinquish life on my own and bow the knee in humble repentance to Christ. Now, this is interesting, these three seeds if you're critiquing Jesus' parable, which is always tricky to do, but if you're assessing this, you're saying, 
that sower was kind of boneheaded. I mean, indiscriminate sowing like this, homeboy just threw it on the path? Who in their right mind would sow seeds on a path? This is not what Jesus is running at. It's not that the sower intended to throw it on a path. Well, the language here is, it fell on the path. The sower is indiscriminately sowing, unbeknownst to where this activity is going to be cultivated. And friends, this challenges our presuppositions about what types of soil we're encountering when we interact with people who are far from the God. You can't predict it. Oh, you're clearly the path, not for you today. This isn't what's happening. It's of a sower indiscriminately sowing seed, and the picture is a realistic portrayal of the incidental losses that are going to occur along the way. The various responses to the word on the lips of God's people and those who are not God's. And what we see here is that the results, the production, is completely in God's hands. Some are going to hear and believe, and some are not. And this is all attributable to a great act of God, which again reminds us of the glory of our own salvation, does it not? There is nothing inherent to you that bent you towards responding rightly to the good news of Jesus Christ apart from a great work of God in your heart. Paul writes this truth compellingly in 1 Corinthians 2. We do not, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden mystery, hidden wisdom in a mystery. A wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But it's written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human heart conceived, God has prepared for those who love him. Now God has revealed these things to us by his spirit. Since the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we've not received the spirit of this world, but the spirit that comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. But the person without the spirit does not receive what comes from God's spirit, because it's foolishness to him. He's not able to understand it since it's evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything since he himself is, cannot be evaluated by anyone. For who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Notice throughout this writing, the interaction of those who can hear, who can respond, can do so only by virtue of God's Spirit's work. And those who can't, simply can't, right? It is not our responsibility to change the human heart. This is God's sovereign work. We indiscriminately sow 
trusting that the seed is going to fall in the places that he has cultivated. So not only is the kingdom invitation a proclaimed word, but idea number two. God sows, God sows kingdom citizens in the world to proclaim this word. Now, a moment's consideration, so let me say it again. God sows kingdom citizens in the world to proclaim this word. So remember where we started in Isaiah 6, the picture? The seed was the, the remnant of Israel, the people of God, who God protected, cultivated a heart to love him, and then planted back in the ground to spring to life, to bear fruit in the places that he's put them. Now, Jesus seems to me to be saying that the exile is over. God is now sowing true Israel in the land, the people that he has called by virtue of his spirit, soon to be Jew and Gentile alike, and they fulfill Jesus' role in proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Uh, He's, uh, let's go this way, he's sowing a people who sow the word. Or we might say it, it's embodied gospelers. It's not disembodied gospelers, but it's the remnant of the people of God who have been empowered by God by virtue of his spirit, been saved by him, who are then sown in the land to sow the word. We've got kind of two things happening here. So when Jesus says you're a light city set on a hill, You're the salt of the earth. The the picture is those who have heard and responded, who this stuff makes sense to is not foolishness. God then sows you back into the ground in strategic places to embody the word, to proclaim the word. He's he's invested this in, in you, into the world, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus which would then, then have great truth for all of us who are, are in Christ. This means two levels of God's sovereignty in your life. He's demonstrated his sovereign work in saving you. He's called you by virtue of his spirit. And he's demonstrated his sovereign activity in replanting you in a place where you can be an embodied gospeler, where you can sow, he sows a people who sows the word which that is then true of, of all. So then consider, where, where's God sown us? Like, where, where's, God, where's God sown you? Where, 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 I know it felt like to you, you chose your house because it had the amenities that you wanted. But, but where's God sown you? What does God have you? Our city, we were talking about this in the missionary live yesterday morning. Uh, 506,000 people in Greenville County. That doesn't include uh, temporary residents, college students, and the like. Let's say that number swells to about 600,000 residents in Greenville County. Latest census data, evangelical Christians, those professing evangelical Christianity, uh, 186,000 of that 506,000. So if the temporary resident number swells to about 600,000, we're all doing the math in our heads and thinking, well, 186,000, man, that seems like a really bloated number. Let's dial that number back to about, let's say 100,000. You do whatever math you want to do. Let's say there's 100,000 genuine followers of Jesus in Greenville County among a population of 600,000 people. 
Is it possible that something like what we see Paul testify to in the book of Acts, that somewhere around 10 million people over the course of two years had heard the gospel because of the sentness of these early apostles? Is it possible that 600,000 people could hear the gospel proclaimed because of embodied gospelers in Greenville County? And is it possible that somehow we've missed it a bit when our method of getting 100,000 to 600,000 has been doing church better in hopes that somehow the 600,000 are going to pour into our doors? But what if a better approach, what, what if, just use my math for a second, what if 100,000 just said, I'm going to devote time and intentionality to building a relationship and proclaiming the gospel to one person this year? And what if over the course of this year, that one person came to saving faith? All of a sudden in Greenville County, we've got 200,000 people who are disciples of Jesus Christ. And what if in our discipleship efforts, we called them, if you're reconciled to God, you're a minister of reconciliation. Remember 2 Corinthians 5? So then as soon as they become believers, they're sown back into their fields to reproduce the process. So what happens in 2021, 2,000 becomes 400,000. 200,000 becomes 400,000. And then by 2022, friends, we got 800,000. We've way outpunted the coverage of the population of our community by each one taking the responsibility to be an embodied gospeler to one person. Can you do that? Can, can you do, do that this year? Can you take personal responsibility to proclaim the gospel in the places God has intentionally sown you? And then lastly, idea number three, the response to this proclaimed word, this embodied proclaimed word, is evidenced by fruit. The response, or a genuine response to the proclaimed word, is evidenced by fruit. Verse 20. It was like the seed sown on good ground. And they hear the word, they welcome it, it produces fruit 30, 60, and 100 times what is sown. Now again, here, numbers aren't critical. We're not trying to guess at what 30 and 60 and 100 is. What's important is to notice a prosperous harvest, right? It seems like nothing's happening. And then all of a sudden, there's some seed that falls on good soil, and it blows our mind. I mean, this is 2 Corinthians 2. No eyes see. We, we don't under, we can't see this. And there's danger Notice, for a time, seeds two, three, and four look exactly alike. It's difficult to discern which is which for a season. Jesus even testified, they receive it with joy. The word seems to fall on good soil. How do you discern soils two through four? Time, fruit, a radical reorientation of life that's demonstrated by bearing fruit, indicative of God's work by his spirit. A willingness to listen, to practice what they listen, and respond appropriately. Friends, let me just say, kind of as an aside, maybe a kidney punch. It's the exact same thing that we would expect out of you if you profess to be in Christ. It's exactly what should be activated in you this morning. 
You should hear the word, receive it, and respond, right? This would be indicative of kingdom citizens. And it's a warning to everyone else, to all those who failed to hear, to respond. Superficial hearing is not the mark of a disciple of Jesus. Productive hearing is what counts. And so, friends, this morning, you're here and you've heard, but you haven't heard. May I again redouble the effort to proclaim the gospel to you this morning, that you can turn to Jesus this morning and be saved. That there is one who lived the life that you could not live, died the death that you deserved, and rose victorious over Satan's sin and death, and in him is your only hope. If that seed has fallen on soil in your heart that has proven unproductive, may it not do so today. Turn to him and be saved. And if there is something in you that, is, that you feel the motor revving when I call you to that, take that as an indication of the active work of God's spirit, cultivating in you what you could never muster on your own. Lean to a neighbor, come to a pastor after this service, and as the people of old, ask them, brother, sister, what must I do to be saved? Turn to Jesus and be saved. Brothers and sisters who have done that, may the seed of the gospel truth of this beautiful parable cause you to redouble your efforts to indiscriminate gospel sowing. The kind of sowing that would believe you don't just profess his sovereignty in a classroom when it sounds good, but demonstrate it through active evangelism that's willing to put yourself on the line and trust him with the results. And may he and his sovereign care use the seeds that are sown from this church to see men, women, and children in Greenville County come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and us together worship him forever. Would you join me in a prayer to that end? Our Father, we bow knowing that those of us who can address you as Father can only do so because your Spirit did in us something we could not do in ourselves. We did not have minds to understand. We did not have eyes to see. We did not have hearts to respond. But your spirit was at work. You saved us. And this was not of our own doing because we would have boasted in that. But it was solely because of your grace. And as a result, we give you praise. And we know that the same spirit that was at work bringing the truths of the gospel to bear on our lives is still active and at work. The way we know that is this world continues to exist. When your mission's over, this is over. But for now, your mission's continue. You're saving people. There are people in this city right now who your spirit is active at work in, transforming them. Would we be embodied gospelers, mindful of your sovereignty and placing us where you have? 
and proclaiming the message that the kingdom is available both now and forever. As we sing with the intensity of the passion that we have for you, compel us to being productive seed this week and sowing the proclaimed word of Jesus Christ. We ask for your sake and your glory. Amen.